Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. For four decades, he's been sounding the alarm. Now Paul Ehrlich, author of The Population Bomb, says... I told you so. I warned 40 years ago about climate change. What are we having going on now? I warned 40 years ago about emergent diseases. What do we have now? I warned 40 years ago that if we didn't do something about the population situation, people would still be hungry. We, well, we've got many, many millions of people hungry. So Chicken Little says the sky is falling. Just remember, maybe Chicken Little is right. Also, rock climbing is tough love. You're sleeping on the wall or in the snow cave, and your whole life is a very different thing. It's much more simple, and everything means a lot more. High infatuation and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. Global warming is one of the defining environmental issues of our time, but only now has it become high profile among presidential hopefuls. Today, we take a look at where the Democratic candidates stand on climate change. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports the debate is not so much over climate change policies, but who has the political will to really do something if elected. Starting with Senator Dodd. When Democrats stood on a Philadelphia stage for their most recent debate, Connecticut Senator Chris Dodd tried to stand out on the issue of global warming. Dodd says his call for a tax on carbon emissions has support from some unexpected places, but not his fellow Democrats. Yeah, I find it somewhat startling here that uh, Ronald Reagan's former Secretary of State and George Bush's first economic, chief economic advisor, are frankly more courageous and bold on energy policy than my, my fellow competitors here for this job. So the corporate carbon tax, taxing carbon, is a critical element if you're going to achieve this kind of energy change we need in our country. Dodd's plan would tax sources of greenhouse gases like oil companies, manufacturing and power plants, and spend that money on cleaner energy sources like wind and solar. But a tax is a tough thing to sell, and Dodd's campaign is floundering. All other Democratic candidates favor a cap-and-trade approach to cut greenhouse gases. Most of them aim for an 80 percent reduction in CO2 emissions by mid-century, about what climate scientists say is likely needed to avoid the risk of the most harmful warming. Those proposals win kudos from conservation groups, but that leaves a political problem. When their climate platforms are so similar, how can candidates stand out in the crowd? New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, who once led the nation's Department of Energy, says it takes leadership experience. When the planet is polluted by fossil fuels and man-made pollution, it is American leadership and it's presidential leadership and it has to be an energy revolution, not these little energy bills that the Congress keeps passing that are meaningless. The global warming debate among Democrats has shifted from a comparison of plans to a contest of wills. Which of them would really get it done? Illinois Senator Barack Obama says it means standing up to powerful economic interests. We've got uh, major global challenges like climate change. 
and that's going to require big, meaningful change. Uh, it does not mean, I think, changing positions uh, whenever it's politically convenient. When I go to Detroit and I say to the automakers that they need to raise fuel efficiency standards, not in front of some environmental group, that kind of consistency and principled leadership, I think, is what is going to move us in the next direction. That's what I'll provide as president. The implication, of course, is that other candidates lack such principle. Obama didn't name names, but former North Carolina Senator John Edwards did. I think that if people want the status quo, Senator Clinton's your candidate. Well, the reason we haven't tackled global warming is because of oil companies, power companies, and their lobbyists. And the question is, what are we going to do for our children? Are you willing to look your children in the eye tonight and say, I'm going to turn this mess over to you? New York Senator Hillary Clinton, the frontrunner, was ready for attacks from her Democratic rivals. She responded with a pledge to take on Republicans, who she says obstruct efforts to deal with global warming. On every issue from health care for children to an energy policy that puts us on the right track to deal with climate change and make us more secure, I have been standing against the Republicans, George Bush and Dick Cheney, and I will continue to do so, and I think Democrats know that. The spat continued in the spin room after the debate. Joe Trippi with the Edwards campaign painted Clinton as too tied to Washington's special interests. If you're not going to take on the oil industry and stop taking the money from their lobbyists, how the hell are you going to do anything about global warming? Campaign finance records show Clinton has taken about a million dollars from energy and natural resources interests in her Senate and presidential campaigns. That's more than her Democratic rivals. But Clinton strategist Mark Penn echoes his candidate's words that it's the record that really matters. Well, she has a 35-year record of fighting for issues, which neither Obama nor Edwards have. You know, change is, as she said, change is just a word unless you have the strength and experience to make it happen. Democrats will hear much more about climate change from voters. One example, South Carolina has an important early primary contest, and 100 South Carolina mayors just sent candidates a letter urging them to make global warming a top priority when they campaign in their towns. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Philadelphia. We'll take a look at where Republican candidates stand on climate change in an upcoming show. In the meantime, learn more about global warming politics on our website, LOE.org. Lead is an insidious substance. The human body has no use for the metal, but once inside, it can damage the brain, leading to learning disabilities, impulsive behavior, and violence. Now it seems exposure to lead as a youth can also be linked to crime later in life. A recent study correlated the phase-out of lead in paint and gasoline in the 1970s with crime rates two decades later, and found in the words of the researcher Rick Nevins a stunning fit. As the amount of lead in the environment declined, so did the crime rates in nine countries. In fact, Nevin says, the phase-out of lead did more to stop violent crime rates among people who came of age in its demise than any social policy. Kim Dietrich at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine has also been studying the pernicious effects of lead. For the past 30 years, he's been following inner-city kids from the time before they were even born until now. Professor Dietrich says the latest findings linking crime and lead are no surprise, but he's got even better evidence. Even though these ecological studies were generally well done, 
they're limited because they cannot correlate individual lead dose with individual behavior. So you're not going to see a one-to-one -one relationship between lead exposure and engaging in antisocial behavior. But the trends are clearly there, and the relationships in, in our particular study in Cincinnati were quite robust. And what did you find? What we found was a uh, robust relationship between both exposure to lead in the womb and during early childhood and the rate of criminal arrests in these individuals when they were in their early 20s. And this association was strongest for crimes involving violence. So can these uh, findings help explain the disproportionate numbers of minorities who are incarcerated? It certainly has played a role. Children living in our inner cities, who are largely minority, live in, uh, typically live in homes built before 1950 that are in various states of disrepair. And they are exposed to high levels of lead from one principal source, and that's lead paint residues, which are in their environments in the form of dust in the interior of the homes, and as a result of the peeling off, sloughing off of layers of exterior leaded paint, there are high concentrations of lead in the soils around their home. So while in these studies that have associated the decline in crime with the decline in atmospheric lead levels, they focus on the general population. But children growing up in our inner cities are still exposed to high levels of lead and have not benefited as much from the public health efforts to reduce lead in gasoline and in foods and other ambient sources. What about poor nutrition among minorities? Does that play a role? Because I know that, for example, calcium it resembles lead in terms of the body's ability that, to absorb that's it. right. And children who have diets that are lower in calcium will absorb more lead than children who have calcium-sufficient diets. However, children, whether their diet is, diets are sufficient or not, still absorb more lead than adults do because of their physiology. Given the same amount of ingested lead, children will absorb more four times or more lead uh, than an adult. But you're right, calcium and lead follow the same physiological pathways or stream in our bodies. And this results in a cascade of effects in the developing nervous system, resulting in outcomes in the brains ranging from cell death to abnormal branching and establishment of connections between the neurons. So lead results in this miswired brain that leads to lower intellectual function, learning problems, and academic failure. So children who are frustrated in their learning environments are more likely to turn to antisocial behavior, delinquency, and, as adults, crime as an outlet. So if you look at inner cities, you look at the poor, you look at their exposure to weapons, you look at their exposure to violence, you look at their exposure to lead and their poor nutrition, is this sort of the, the perfect combination of factors for crime? Yes, it's, in a sense, the perfect storm. Uh, the environment provides a lot of incentives for crime. The child is in a community where he or she sees violence. Uh, the availability of guns, uh, the availability of illicit drugs. So I would say that the inner city environment provides the weapon. Lead pulls the trigger. Would it be an overstatement to say that if we were to reduce lead dramatically from our inner cities, we would see a dramatic drop in violent crime? Well, lead does not exist in a vacuum. Lead is contributing to criminal behavior in the context of other social and economic factors that are going on at the same time. But what's unique about lead 
is that we don't have to do complex and politically difficult social engineering. We know how to remove lead from the environment and how to prevent children from being exposed to lead. Engineering lead out of the environment will prove to be a lot easier and probably cheaper than uh, removing some of the other factors that contribute to criminal behavior. So if I went to a prison, took blood samples from inmates, would I find that inmates had higher levels of lead in their body? Not necessarily, because if you take one blood lead level from one person at a single point in time, you can't tell really if that represents past exposure or only exposure that occurred very recently, because the half-life of lead in blood is only about a month. So any one blood lead assessment is not very good, generally speaking, in terms of determining how much lead they've been exposed to in the past. So you feel there's really a very close causal link between crime and lead? I am convinced that we're seeing that in our own data, and sometimes the data speak clearly, and I think the data are speaking clearly to us that there is a causal link between early exposure to lead, juvenile delinquency, and crime. Well, Professor, thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Kim Dietrich is a professor of environmental health at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Coming up, maybe Chicken Little was right. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Genetically speaking, humans are 99% the same as other primates. And of course, we share not only genes with our closest cousins, but the planet. Now, a new report, the world's 25 most endangered primates, finds that non-human primates are in peril, and so are their habitats. Russell Mittermeier is president of Conservation International and chaired the panel that prepared the report. Hello, Mr. Mittermeier. Hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, but it seems like, uh, you know, mankind's closest living relatives, apes, monkeys, lemurs, other primates, aren't doing as well. Well, a good percentage of the primates are in uh, in pretty serious trouble, and roughly one in every four species of primates, and there are about 650 different kinds of primates out there, about one in every four are going to be either in the critically endangered or the endangered categories, which means they're, you know, they're hanging on by the skin of their teeth, and they're really, uh, some of them are quite close to extinction. And what we're trying to do with this top 25 most endangered primates list is highlight some of those species that are really, really in grave danger of disappearing. But one of the ways I like to convey how severely depleted these animals actually are is to say that if you gave every individual of those 25 species a seat in a football stadium, you probably wouldn't be able to fill an entire large football stadium with all of the remaining individuals representing these uh, these 25 species, which I think is uh, is pretty sobering. So we're looking at, you know, less than 100,000 individuals of all of these species combined. Well, how is it possible that they're in great danger of disappearing? 
Well, there are a number of different uh, threats to non-human primate populations. First of all, about 90% of them are 90% of the primates are tropical rainforest animals, and of course, rainforests have uh, suffered a lot over the past uh, 40 or 50 years. On top of that, you have the issue of bushmeat hunting as a source of food, and in Asia, in particular, as a, as a medicinal uh, product, a source of medicinal products. We have some sound uh, uh, from an orangutan, mm-hmm. the Sumatran orangutan. Have I pronounced that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yes, orangutan. Mm-hmm. Man of the forest. Man of the forest. Orang is man in Indonesian, and hutan is forest. Well, here's some sound from the man of the forest. <laughs> What's going on there? I'm not entirely sure, but it sounds like uh, there's a young one that's perhaps a little distressed. I can't quite make the sound out, but they should be distressed because the Sumatran uh, orangs are down to just uh, a few thousand individuals. They've uh, suffered a great deal from uh, oil palm plantations, for example, and heavy logging in uh, in Sumatra. Sumatra's lost a large portion of its habitat over the past 20 or 30 years, and they're just hanging on in a handful of protected areas there, actually. But this is a wonderful creature. It's not only a great ape, it's also the largest tree-dwelling animal on Earth, and great creatures and, you know, good potential uh, targets for ecotourism, which could generate a lot of revenue for local communities, and, and yet they've really suffered quite a bit in the past few decades. What's the rarest primate you've ever seen? The rarest primate that I have ever seen, well, I just went looking for the Hainan gibbon, which is down to 19 individuals, and I missed it. I didn't get to see it on this trip. I'm going to have to go back and uh, try again. I guess uh, on that list, of the species on that list, the rarest one that I've seen would have to be the greater bamboo lemur from Madagascar. This is a fascinating animal. It's a bamboo specialist, rather like a little primate version of a giant panda. It can crack open. It only weighs about two kilos, about five pounds, and yet it can crack open stems of giant bamboo, really hard stems, and it can digest cyanide. It's quite an amazing creature. And right now, there are probably less than 100 of those that we know of. I think the latest estimate, we're probably up around 60 to 70 documented individuals remaining of this species. And it's not just a unique species. It's also a unique genus of primates that's found only in a few remaining forest patches in the eastern rainforests of Madagascar. Uh, Another interesting thing about primates is that we're still discovering new species all over the place, which is remarkable. Here we are in the 21st century. You would think all of the species of our closest living relatives would have already been cataloged and uh, described by scientists, but that's not the case. And in fact, in places like Madagascar and parts of the Amazon, we're finding new species just about every year. So some primates are actually doing well then? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily that the new ones being uh, discovered are are doing well. It's just that we've overlooked them up until now. I mean, that's one of the more exciting aspects of of our work, that uh, while we're trying very hard to conserve those that are threatened with extinction, we're also making uh, some wonderful new discoveries of species that were previously unknown. And some of those that we discover are already in such a depleted condition. There's such tiny ranges under threat that as we describe them, we have to put them in the endangered category. Russell Mittermeier is the president of Conservation International. To learn more about the world's 25 most endangered primates list, go to our website, LOE.org. Mr. Mittermeier, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, non-human primates aren't the only ones in peril. So are we. 
and so is the planet. That according to a recent UN report called Global Environment Outlook 4. Akeem Steiner is executive director of the panel that produced the study. The sobering and not surprising findings are that on virtually all major variables of development, we still have to conclude that the signs are pointing downwards. We have not turned the corner on major issues such as energy, climate change, loss of biodiversity, decline in fisheries, deforestation. The UN panel warns that even mass extinction is possible. Of course, there have been bleak warnings about the fate of the Earth before. Among the most famous of pessimistic predictions is from biologist Paul Ehrlich. In 1968, Ehrlich wrote The Population Bomb, a landmark book in which he predicted that as a result of an exploding population, by 1985, quote, the battle to feed all of humanity will be over, and that in the 1970s and 80s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. Paul Ehrlich is now at Stanford University, and we called him up to see if he's changed his perspective. Hi, Professor Ehrlich. Nice to be here. You know, this UN report is um, pretty pessimistic, uh, and you've got a history of being something of a professional pessimist. Is it time for me to start walking down the street with a sign saying the end is near? Uh, I think it's time for people to take very seriously the things that we're doing to our life support systems. In other words, it's, it's not just me that's pessimistic. In 1993, 58 academies of science said that is basically all the academies of science in the world said, if we don't change our ways, we're doomed. And 1,500 of the world's leading scientists got out a statement called World Scientists Warning to Humanity, said exactly the same thing wasn't covered in the press at all. In other words, the scientific community has been trying to warn society about the various things that we're facing, and uh, it just hasn't penetrated the media or, uh, or certainly governments. But back in 1968, when you wrote The Population Bomb, you wrote that the battle to feed all of humanity is over. That was, what, 40 years ago? 40 years ago, and perfectly correct. We still have about a billion people who don't get enough food to function properly. Uh, in 1968, in the same book, I warned about the possibilities of global warming, and that, that's something the scientific community's known about since about 1898. Whereas none of this stuff is new. Uh, it's just a massive report happened to come out of the UN saying all the trends are in the wrong direction, and they're perfectly correct, but it's something, again, that the scientific community has been saying as loud as it could for a long time. So we are facing an existential crisis. We're facing a crisis in which the way many of us are able to live will not be possible for the vast majority of people sometime in the uh, relatively near future, hopefully after I'm dead, but uh, maybe not. Well, according to the UN report, by 2050, there'll be well about 9.7 billion people on the planet. Is that in excess of the carrying capacity of the planet? Certainly in anything like today's lifestyles. You know, if you try and move to a battery, what one of my colleagues calls a battery chicken type of world in which everybody has the absolute minimum required to keep them alive, it might be possible. Did you see battery chicken? Battery chickens are these situations where you raise billions of chickens in one building where every chicken has, uh, you know, a full square foot and just is in there and gets fed uh, and uh, grows. That's, that's the battery chicken world where everybody is living the absolute minimum standard of living so you can maximize the number of people. If we want, for example, the United States to go on for thousands and thousands of years, the way to do it isn't to see how many people we can cram in in the next 20. You've got to remember we're at about 6.6 .6 billion now. 
talking about adding about 2.5 billion more. First of all, 2.5 billion is 500 million people more than were on the planet when I was born in 1932. So we're adding more than existed when I was born. Second, the next 2.5 billion are going to be a lot more expensive to take care of environmentally than the previous 2.5 billion because of course people are smart they they farm the best land first they you know you can't get oil by sticking a pointed stick in the ground in Pennsylvania anymore you got to drill down a couple of miles and uh, water has to be transported long distances and i think anybody who reads the newspapers and can count can see that we're in deep trouble just from the numbers of people versus the resources that are available ask him in Atlanta uh, where they're running out of uh, water. Ask them in Southern California, where climate change is helping huge fires to devastate areas. We, I was just in Brazil, and the Pantanal swamp area was burning, and the Cerrado, the, the savanna areas south of the Amazon, were burning in record droughts. So, uh, you know, you, can ju- you just have to look around and see what's happening. But, Professor, I can't resist the, the wordplay temptation. That is, you know, you say battery chicken, some people say chicken little. Well, they say chicken little, but again, uh, I warned 40 years ago about climate change. What are we having going on now? I warned 40 years ago about emergent diseases. What do we have now? I warned 40 years ago uh, that if we didn't do something about uh, about the population situation, people would still be hungry. We Well, we've got many, many millions of people hungry. So Chicken Little says the sky is falling. Just remember, maybe Chicken Little is right. According to the U.N. report, each person on the planet needs about 22 hectares. But I'm thinking, you know, there's Hong Kong, there's New York, you know. Uh, well, yeah, that's right. But the, the, the thing you got to remember is the people in New York don't live on New York. They import stuff from acres all over the rest of the world. In other words, it's, it's a common fact. It's actually been named by the scientific community the Netherlands fallacy, the idea that the whole planet can be as crowded as the Netherlands. And, of course, it's not people versus area. It's people versus the resources that support them. And those resources include things called sinks, like the capacity of the atmosphere to absorb carbon dioxide. That's a very important resource for the planet. It's one we're overusing at the moment. Are we as a species capable of comprehending and dealing with problems of this magnitude? Sure we are. We're perfectly capable of it. We're the dominant animal on the planet. Uh, we're in many ways brilliant, but we haven't gotten the political and ethical will together to do the things we ought to be doing. And the educational system is deteriorating. The media don't generally cover this stuff. I mean, if you if you look at the top stories in the media, how often do they deal with the fact that we're within decades of losing our civilization. It's almost never mentioned. There are some things now. It's coming out. But, for instance, you would think, watching the media today, that the only big threat is climate change. But, of course, many people feel, for instance, that the number of toxic substances we're adding to the environment are an even bigger threat. Uh, In many uh, villages in the Arctic and subarctic, there are only half as many male babies being born as female babies, and it's likely a sign of the hormone-mimicking chemicals that we manufacture, release into the environment, and that are carried by the climate system to the poles. The threat of emerging diseases, the first one, of course, has been AIDS, the first really big one in recent decades, but the more people we have, the greater the threat, particularly the ones that are malnourished, of new plagues taking over, a new flu, and so on. So that's considered a huge threat. 
and the loss of biodiversity, the other organisms that are the working parts of our life support systems, uh, is also a huge threat. I mean, even economists are looking at issues like, are we consuming too much now? In other words, the, the, the scholarly community is enormously concerned, and the general public, and particularly our so-called leadership, is utterly ignorant. So it's not a great situation. So it has not reached the tipping point? We don't know. But what other choice do we have but to try and change so that if we haven't reached the tipping point, we don't reach it? Because the tipping point is going to be miserable, and uh, uh, an awful lot of people will die, and uh, lifestyles will change very, very dramatically. And uh, we don't want to do that. So, you know, I, I can't be incredibly optimistic about what we're going to do, but you can say that societies can change very rapidly when the time is ripe. Look, for instance, how rapidly the Soviet Union disappeared when none of us expected it to. When I was a kid, lynchings were common in the south of the United States. They aren't anymore. In other words, things can change very rapidly. We don't fully understand why, but when the time is right, they change. And I think that the, your chore in mind is to try and ripen the time. Well, Professor, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to me, too. Thank you very much. Paul Ehrlich is Bing Professor of Population Studies at Stanford University. Writer Tom Montgomery Fate recently decided to reread Henry David Thoreau's classic journal, Walden. But it wasn't until Montgomery Fate closed the book and began to wander through a nearby meadow that he was able to fully appreciate the meaning of the words. On a cool, sunny afternoon, I sit in a small cabin in the woods reading Walden. The long, winding streams of words sparkle with insight. But after riding the raft of Thoreau's consciousness for several hours, I lose track of where it's going. I know that's the point, the journey matters, not the destination, but on page 154, I get snagged on this long sentence. In our most trivial walks, we are constantly, though unconsciously, steering like pilots by certain well-known beacons and headlands, and not till we are completely lost or turned around, for a man needs only to be turned around once with his eyes shut in this world to be lost, do we appreciate the vastness and strangeness of nature. A half hour or so later, I wake up to my own snoring and rub my eyes. I close Walden and walk outside into the meadow, hoping to learn how to read Thoreau. A gust of wind blows through a row of 90-year-old silver maples, and the cool air is suddenly alive with the golden rain of a thousand spinning seeds, what Thoreau often called maple keys. Another gust and another flock of the twirling blades of sunlight takes flight, I lie down on a cedar picnic table underneath the trees. The maple seed shadows, the whirlybird silhouettes falling across the barren wood and their dark revolutions are as magical as the seeds that are landing on my body and the tangle of my hair. I sit down in the dry grass and try to watch the flight of one individual seed, but I can't do it. I'm lost in the awe of the whirling multitude and in the whoosh and whistle of the wind which is blown into a surprising gale. It is here, amid the timeless language of wind and seed, I understand Thoreau's words. 
that by steering through the vastness and strangeness of nature with an open eye and ear, I can wake up and trust the quiet faith of a maple tree and a thousand whirling prayers. Tom Montgomery Faye teaches writing at the College of DuPage in Glen Ellen, Illinois. His most recent book is the memoir, Steady and Trembling. Just ahead, turning plowshares into swords over food. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. In India, the benefits of modern agriculture come with a high price. It's been reported as many as 150,000 Indian farmers over the past decade have committed suicide, many by drinking the pesticides they put on their crops. According to physicist and social activist Vandana Shiva, the farmers' despair is due to the weight of overwhelming debt. They can no longer afford the escalating price of chemicals and bioengineered seeds, like pest-resistant BT cotton. Shiva says the suicides in India are only part of a global problem, that can be traced to the way food is produced. Chemical agriculture really is a theft from nature and a theft from the poor. And organic, ecological farming is the only way we'll be able to address the ecological crisis related to farming, the agrarian crisis emerging from industrial globalized agriculture, and the public health crisis coming from using war chemicals to produce our food. Vandana Shiva is editor of a new book called Manifestos on the Future of Food and Seed. Living on Earth, Steve Kerwood recently spoke with her about the problems, the politics, and the possibilities of food production. How did you first become aware of the relationships between the environment, the poor, and food? The connections between the environment and agriculture and food systems and the issues of poverty really came home to me in the 80s, particularly 1984, and I don't know why George Orwell picked that as the title of one of his books. It was the year we had the worst terrorism and extremism in India. 30,000 people were killed in Punjab, where the Green Revolution had been implemented. The Green Revolution had even received a Nobel Peace Prize for creating prosperity and through prosperity creating peace. And yet in the 1980s, there was the worst form of violence you could imagine. In December of 1984, we had the worst industrial disaster in Bhopal, which killed 3,000 people in one night, 30,000 people since then. And I was forced to wake up and ask the question, why are we involved in an agriculture that is killing hundreds of thousands, that is so violent and pretends to be feeding the world? And I started to do scientific research on this. My book, The Violence of the Green Revolution, came out of the research that I was doing at that point for the United Nations. 
And increasingly, I have realized that if farmers in India are getting into debt and committing suicides, it's because of these industrially driven agricultural systems that are also destroying the environment. If children are going hungry today and are being denied food, it's because the money is being spent on buying toxic chemicals and costly seeds rather than being spent on feeding children, clothing them and sending them to school. So chemical agriculture really is a theft from nature and a theft from the poor. In your book, Vandana Shiva, you mentioned that 800 million people in the world who suffer from malnutrition and the 1.7 billion who suffer from obesity. What is it that the underfed and the overfed have in common? Both are suffering from consequences of corporate control over a food system which has reduced food to commodities, manipulated it, got the farmers into debt. The farmers and farmers' children who are hungry today are the ones who have to sell what they produce in order to pay back credit for buying the chemicals to grow the food. The majority of the hungry in the world are rural people today. They could be growing their own food if the food system hadn't been converted into a market for sales of seeds and agrochemicals. And on the other hand, the obesity epidemic and other related epidemics of diabetes, uh, and in Delhi, Childhood diabetes, you know, the children with diabetes has jumped from 7% to 14% in the city of Delhi as the staple diet of Coca-Cola and chips starts to enter our school system. Both are victims. Three billion people on this planet are being denied their right to healthy, safe, nutritious food even though the planet can produce that food and farmers of the world could produce their food because agribusiness has turned food into a place for highest returns on profits. Now, anyone who goes grocery shopping here in the U.S. can tell you that organically produced foods are generally more expensive than conventional foods. And yet, in your book, you write that uh, conventional food uh, is not the key to feeding the poor. Uh, Tell me about what you call the myth of cheap food. The myth of cheap food is related first and foremost to the fact that cheap food is a result of our tax money being used to lower the prices of food that has been produced at very high cost financially and in the process has driven farmers of the land, including in the United States, where family farms are being destroyed because of this very artificial low price of food. The monopolies that grow with it, which creates a buyer's market as far as farmers are concerned. And then at every level, a subsidy given for manipulating food more and more to take away its nutrition and food value and to add hazards and risks to it. The entire food system is today serving corporations and not serving people or the planet. We need to reclaim the food system. Now, some of the companies will tell you that uh, genetically modified foods uh, help increase food production, uh, making more food available. You've been opposed to genetically modified uh, foods since they first came on the market. Uh, What do you see wrong with genetically modified crops? Well, you know, the first thing is, if they were so productive, Indian farmers who are using BT cotton wouldn't be the worst victims of farmer suicides. Monsanto keeps churning out data about how it's $27 million additional income. If the farmers were making that additional income, they wouldn't be ending their lives. The recent Nobel 
price in biology has gone to biologists who have shown that the determinism on which genetic engineering is based does not work. Genes work in very complex interactions. This is why those of us who critique genetic engineering started to critique it as a very crude and primitive technology based on very wrong assumptions of how life organizes itself. This idea of one gene, one expression doesn't work. Because of the crudeness of the technology, industry has so far managed to bring us commercially only two kinds of traits. One is herbicide-tolerant crops, which means spray more Roundup, contaminate your ecosystems and food systems more. And the second is Bt toxin crops, where a toxin called Bt is engineered into the plant, and now every cell is making that toxin every moment. It starts to kill non-target species. The very big study of Cornell on the monarch butterfly is one example. 1,800 sheep in India dying by eating Bt cotton is another example. Arpad puts out studies that shows that genetically engineered food fed to mice starts to create huge damage. Physiologically, uh, immunity systems collapse, the brain shrunk. We need much more research of this kind. Unfortunately, the industry censors the research, pretends that everything is fine, and starts to target the scientists who have brought some level of awareness to society of the risks of manipulating life at the genetic level without assessing the consequences adequately. In your book, you include war as one of the unaccounted for external costs of corporate agriculture. What does war have to do with the food we eat? Agrochemicals that have come into farming were war chemicals. They're products of war. When 30,000 people die in Bhopal, it's because those pesticides were designed to kill people. Herbicides were designed as chemical warfare. 243D was Agent Orange of the Vietnam War. So the tools of agriculture have become tools of warfare. Secondly, the idea of creating food dependency is also an idea of warfare. Um, it came out of the foreign policy of the United States, the very word and phrase, use of food as a weapon. It's being used against India today in friendship. The interesting thing is U.S. and India are very intimate today. But the U.S.-India agreement on agriculture is trying to create dependency of India on U.S. supplies of food, even though we're growing 74 million tons. This is warfare by another name. You uh, want to build a new paradigm for food. What does that mean exactly? I think the first element of the new paradigm is food is not a commodity. It's a very basis of life. Secondly, food production is not industrial activity. It is nurturing the land. It is conserving resources. It is giving livelihoods. It is shaping a culture. And it is much more than bringing corn and soya bean and wheat and cotton to the marketplace. We have to recognize that biodiversity is the real capital of food and farming, and linked to it is cultural diversity, that we are richer to the extent 
we have diversified food cultures in the world, we are poorer as the biodiversity of our farms disappears and the cultural diversity of our food systems disappear. So what should the average person do in response to your call? I think the average person should recognize that even though they are in cities, they're connected to the land, that somewhere somebody produced the food they're eating, and we will all be freer if around every city are rural communities where small farmers are able to produce food of quality, make a living doing that, and there is a more intimate connection between the food people eat and the land it comes from and the producers who have made an effort to bring it. I think every city should have its own food shed. The creation of farmers' markets is a beginning, but I don't think we can leave the farmers' markets to be token symbols. We need to move the money of taxpayers from subsidizing corporations to bring us junk and poison to bringing farmers' markets everywhere, to helping small producers everywhere connect to those who are looking for more secure food, more safe food, more tasty food, more quality food. The most important issue is to break the myth that safe, ecological, local is a luxury only the rich can afford. This planet cannot afford the additional burden of more carbon dioxide, more nitrogen oxide, more toxics in our food. Our farmers cannot afford the economic burden of these useless toxic chemicals, and our bodies cannot afford the bombardment of these chemicals anymore. Dr. Vandana Shiva is a physicist and environmental activist. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Vandana Shiva is also the editor of a new book called Manifestos on the Future of Food and Seed. She spoke with Living on Earth executive producer Steve Kerwood. Davis knows her way up a rock face. Climbing tooth and nail to the top of some of the world's highest peaks is what she does for a living. Steph Davis is the first woman to climb 11,000-foot Fitzroy Peak in Patagonia, and she's done first descents in Pakistan, Baffin Island in Canada, and Kyrgyzstan. Throughout her life, Davis has made sacrifices to pursue her passion for climbing, and she's written about it in her book High Infatuation, A Climber's Guide to Love and Gravity. We have this audio profile of professional climber Steph Davis. The first day I went climbing, everybody was like, oh, let's take the cute girl climbing. And then, boom, I go do this thing, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is my thing. I have to do this. And then I just had to change everything. I finished my master's. I didn't want to get a PhD. I decided it wasn't for me. You know, I'd been accepted. I had a teaching assistantship offer, everything. And then I just thought, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to live in Estes Park, Colorado, wait tables, and climb. (music) 
there are a lot of different kinds of climbing. And of course, I love rock climbing. It's simple and pure and beautiful. But alpine climbing has always really drawn me as well because mostly because I just like to be there. I like to be in those places. That's how you get into the mountains. And then things, things get way more intense as well in an alpine climbing situation. There's a lot of endurance associated, like maybe 24-hour, 36-hour pushes where you're just going the whole time. It's so elemental, you know? You're sleeping on the wall or in the snow cave, and your whole life is a very different thing. It's much more simple, and everything means a lot more. I think there's this illusion that if I'm living too much in an urban, man-made place, maybe I think, oh, I control everything. If I'm cold, I'll just turn up the heat. Or, <laughs> or if I want to get somewhere, I'll just jump in the car. And so I think that I, I change it all, or my fellow humans change it all, that we're in charge. But that's not true. I mean, for example, when you climb in Patagonia, it's so stormy, you're always, I mean, your life revolves around those storms. And so you can only do what those storms let you do. And so you know deep inside on the most fundamental level, I am one more little creature like that lizard, like the spider, trying to handle all the things that nature is giving us. That's one, one thing that climbers just really know because there's no escaping it. Steph Davis's book is called High Infatuation, A Climber's Guide to Love and Gravity. Our audio profile was produced by Living on Earth's Ashley Ahern. And on the next Living on Earth, teaching diplomats to nurture nature for world peace. A peace park is a place where the environment is being instrumentally used to resolve conflicts. In fact, conflicts which may have nothing to do with the environment could be resolved through environmental peace building. War, peace, and the environment next week on Living on Earth. We leave you this week on the streets of New Delhi. This audio montage of residential streets and the marketplace is on the CD Into India, A Composer's Journey, recorded by Hildegard Westerkamp. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Emily Taylor, and Jeff Young. Our interns are Alexandra Gutierrez and Mitra Taj. And this week we say so long to Kelly Cronin. Although Kelly worked behind the scenes, her calm and steady manner played a big role in getting us on the air every week. Thanks, Kelly. You were an asset to LOE, and we wish you well in your new endeavors. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. 
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing, Pax World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.